Turn in your Bibles to Acts 8. Acts 8, 4 through 25 today. And uh, let's pray and then we'll go to God's Word. Father, we come to you this morning because... Uh, we need truth. You are truth. Your word is truth. Uh, we come because we need something to believe in. And you give us truth to believe in because without you, without your word, we would believe in falsehoods. So clarify for us the truth and also give us the power of the Holy Spirit to see, to hear, and to understand that truth to apply it to our thoughts, to our actions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 8, 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. But they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. Praise God. This is His word. I think I maybe have been listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones a little too much. You, you notice how he, if you see a series, he'll kind of take a text, but he'll just take a part of it and then another part of it. But still, like he can never move on past the text. I think I've been stuck on Acts 8 for like three weeks. Um, so I was, t- I was telling Michael that I've, I'm, I've been stuck on this passage. But uh, I wanted to mention that I've laid some groundwork for this sermon already. Um, we're introduced again to this sort of concept of spirit baptism or, or a second blessing, um, two-stage sanctification in this text. And, and I did preach a whole sermon on that from uh, Acts 4 or Acts 1, 4 through 5. Uh, I think it's called spirit baptism. So I'm going to hit on it again today, but I, I addressed it in more uh, fullness in that sermon, and I also preached one Acts eight one through eight about the specific content of Philip's message, and that sermon was called "The Good News About the Christ." So, if you missed those, or if you need a little bit more of the background, I, I have laid some groundwork already for this sermon, uh, but I've called this one "Fighting Phony Faith." Michael was teasing me that I was tempted to to spell phony with an F. It's the great alliteration temptation. Um, But fighting phony faith, I think we all deal with that. And I know I deal with doubt at times, whether my faith is real, whether this whole project of of having a reformed church in a small community, is that something God would have us to do? We have doubts, right? We have struggles with, is what I'm believing the thing that God wants me to believe? You have those Doubts. What we have in this passage is the growing kingdom. And, and as we've seen throughout this growing of the kingdom in Acts, there have been various oppositions. Uh, the, the enemy is attacking the church in various ways. And the way he attacks it in this passage is through phony faith, fake faith, false belief. In the Bible, we know there are false uh, confessions. We read about the wheat and the tares. There are, there, there's wheat in the, God's field and God's kingdom, and there are tares in God's kingdom. We also question, I think, whether we have denominational phoniness beyond just personal, but are we doing the right thing here? And also, we have to identify are our teachers, say Simon the magician, for example, is this person a false believer, a false professor? How do we identify that? How do we identify phony belief? So the story shows us how Christ handled this problem of phony faith in the early church. The first way that we see that Jesus deals with phony faith is that Jesus frees us from falsehood. 
Jesus frees us from falsehood in Samaria. Um, we were talking about the, the Bible Belt and Stephen and, and Michigan and these types of places. Uh, Samaria was not the Bible Belt. <laughs> sort of pseudo-Jewish, but they also had some syncretistic beliefs. They had some even pagan beliefs and I would say even some occult practices that we see from this text. These were people that were captive to falsehood. In verses 9 through 11, we read a little bit about, and even actually if we back up into verse 7, that there were unclean spirits that were being cast out in this place. And then in verse 9, there was this man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, or sorcery. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Uh, Sproul, R.C. Sproul tells a story about how he, one time playing golf, took a couple of matches and put them underneath his golf ball. And then when he went to strike it, it sort of lit the matches and, and sort of looked like it was launched off with fire. And he, he's saying that that's how these magician-type people work, is they're tricksters. They're people who, who are good with illusion. And I think that's true. I think that was part of what Simon was doing. But I think there's more to it than that. Um, I think that, that this is some occult practices. This is sorcery. He was dealing in spiritual realms. And I think we have a problem understanding that those things exist in our current climate. For some reason, right now, right here, the devil doesn't seem seem to work that way as much. But we we shouldn't doubt that there are such that, that we can access spiritual realms if we want to, that we can engage with the forces of darkness. Even in our day. Uh, major voices. Some, I don't know if you know Joe Rogan. He has like the most popular podcast out there. He's always talking about going down to South America and using drugs, using mushrooms, using psychedelics to have spiritual experiences. And I think there's more going on there than just chemical activity. There's real spiritual activity going on there. So we can, in fact, engaged even with the occult. So we have that in our day. But the gospel is never intimidated by evil. That's what we see here in this text. This is a lost area. The Samaritans. Jesus frees us. That's one way that we dispel doubt. Jesus frees us from evil, from falsehood. If you look back, if you look back over your life, do you see that? Do you see that? I believed this thing, and how could I have believed that? (laughs) That's insane, and now I don't believe that. Where did that come from? Why do you have clarity now? We've been freed. We've been freed by Jesus. Also, we have to ask, is our collective thought redeemed? Is it freed? As we analyze our our church, whether it be this church or or the PCA or the, the church in America at large, do we analyze our church and do we say, Are we buying into the evil of our day? Are we buying into the falsehoods of our day? Or are we in some way freed from falsehood?
The question is, how does Jesus free us? Um, and I, I see two ways here. First is what I've just spoken about is clarifying our vision. He helps us to see things that we couldn't see before. He lifts the veil. He gives us truth. And the second way that he frees us that we see here in this passage is that Jesus is the genuine article. All the things that purport to be truth, that purport to be amazing, that deceive us, Jesus is the genuine article. Verses 6 through 8, we see this contrast, and even into 9 through 12, we see this contrast between Philip and Simon. Philip produces signs, whereas Simon is a magician. You see the difference between a sign and magic? Look at uh, in verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice and came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So there's Philip. And then in verse 9, But on the other hand, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. He amazed the people of Samaria, saying he was somebody great. So what we have here is really kind of Jesus being the greater man. As Jesus conquers Samaria, Jesus is the greater man. Here's this great man, great to, it says, from the least to the greatest. So this isn't like some strange backwater cult, like the the most powerful people in Samaria. Everybody believed in Simon. And here Jesus is coming in and breaking through that and being the genuine article. Now, what's really compelling about Jesus is in verse 12. Because anybody can do signs, anybody can tamper with spiritual realms, anybody can become a trickster. But what's compelling about Jesus is in verse 12, where it says, And they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's where they switched from Simon to Jesus, Simon to Philip's message. The good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. No one else besides Jesus and his messengers have good news, true good news, the gospel. The gospel is truth and it's liberating and it's spiritually uh, empowered. Simon can't compete with that. Sin can't compete with the gospel. Psychedelic drugs and spiritual experiences can't compete with that. Jesus frees us from untruth, from falsehood, and that's how he, he fights phony faith within Samaria and within our own lives is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second way he fights phony faith is with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So we have the gospel and we have the Holy Spirit. The Word of God and the Spirit of God go together. Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, is this passage kind of a stick in our systematic spokes? 
If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. And here these people seem to have believed Christ and not yet had the Spirit come down to them. What do we make of that? Again, we'll read it in 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And that seems to be a stick in our systematic theological spokes. It doesn't make sense. We get the Spirit when we believe. There are several uh, groups who teach this sort of second blessing or two-stage theology. Roman Catholicism has a sort of sacramental version of it. Uh, charismatic Pentecostal types have a more experience, experiential uh, version of it that we become converted, but later in life we get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is accompanied oftentimes with speaking in tongues. It's the second stage of Christianity. There's something called Keswick theology, which promotes this idea of entire sanctification, similar to Wesleyan perfectionism, that we become converted, but then at some point later in life we, we get sanctified, entirely sanctified, almost perfect, perfected in life. Or there's the kind of common testimony that you hear that I made Jesus my Savior, but not my Lord. <laughs> he became my Lord later. These are just kind of second stage theology ideas um, that are common in our day. And the question is, is our passage here this morning teaching this? That, that conversion with baptism happens and, and then the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Um, I think there's two answers here in the negative that that's not what it's teaching. First of all, it's interesting if two-stage um, conversion is normative for us, um, why not also the apostolic laying on of hands? Why don't we say to, to that, receive the Holy Spirit and be Spirit-baptized and speak in tongues, you also have to have the, the apostles come lay their hands on you. See, why is one normative but not the other? The other answer is that if it's normative for all, or it's really a question, is it normative for us, for all Christians, to experience conversion this way, or is it a single redemptive historical event? For a specific purpose. And that, that is indeed true. This is redemptive historical. Just as the incarnation, the death of Christ, the, the resurrection, the ascension, uh, Pentecost, all these events, so the Samaritan conversion is one of those events. Happened one time in history for a specific purpose. Now, what is the event? What is the purpose here? Um, First of all, it's the fulfilling of the Great Commission. We've said it over and over again in probably every sermon in this series. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There are these stages of progress in Acts that are clearly laid out for us. And this is one major stage that as the gospel goes from Jerusalem away from sort of a Jewish center into a, a sort of mixed bag Samaria place that the gospel is progressing. The Great Commission is progressing. And this is one major stage of the gospel progression. So that's one part of it. And then we see also um, apostolic confirmation here. So there's a big question racially and culturally. 
where Christianity is primarily Jewish at this point, will the Jews accept these Samaritans, these pagan Samaritans, essentially, these people that they hated, these syncretists? Would they bring them into the fold of Christianity? That's another major battle, a major hurdle that the church has to face early on. And so what we have here is apostolic uh, confirmation, Peter and John going down and saying, laying their hands on them and the Holy Spirit coming at that point. So the point is that, that God withholds the Spirit in this circumstance to make a specific point, and that is not normative for all Christians in all times and all places. Uh, there is a element of truth in two-stage conversion theology, um, and it's not the two stages, but it, it is in the fact that the Holy Spirit is a confirmation for us. The Holy Spirit is a confirmation for us. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have Christ. If we don't, we don't have Christ. It's that simple. Um, we know the story of Acts 10 when Peter goes to Cornelius, and this is another one of those major events in Acts. Um, and when, when Cornelius, the Gentile, and his family believe, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? These Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as Jews, so they're just as much a part of this as, as anyone else is in the church. That's the point. And again, uh, Ephesians 1, 13-14, we read, In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. And it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit is for us a confirmation that we believe the right thing. Again, we go back to those doubts, to those ideas. Do I have phony faith? Well, do you have the Holy Spirit? If you have the Holy Spirit, you have true faith. But how do we know? How do we know we have the Holy Spirit? One of my favorite verses uh, is First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 uh, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you have not seen Christ, you love Christ. And there's a really good book I've been reading by Puritan Thomas Vincent Vincent called Love to the Unseen Christ about that verse. And he, he gives us four ways in that book to c- confirm whether or not we love Christ. And I think these four ways actually also apply to asking the question, how do we know if we have the Holy Spirit? Because if you love Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And where does love come from except for by the Holy Spirit? So um, these four sort of tests are helpful for us in discerning whether we have the Holy Spirit. The first question is, and these are kind of paraphrased, um, but do you desire Christ's presence? Do you desire Christ's presence? And he breaks down that down into two ways. Do you desire his communion? 
in the here and now? Do you desire fellowship with Christ in the here and now? And the other way, do you desire the presence of Christ, is do you long for the return of Christ? For that day when He comes back and we get to be with Him face to face in His very presence. Do you desire that? That's a sign that you love Christ and that you have the Holy Spirit. The second one is similar. Do you prize those things in your life which present Christ to you? Do you prize the things in your life which present Christ to you? So the means of grace, obviously. Do you prize the Word of God preached? Do you prize the sacrament? Do you prize fellowship, Christian saints bringing Christ before your eyes? Are you like the psalmist in some sense who who said, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I thought, I thought of Paige when I read that. I hadn't noticed that before. Inquire in his temple. We have questions and we go to the temple with, for answers. We bring our questions before him. Do you desire to be in the presence of Christ? And do you prize those things which present Christ to you? Uh, the third is, do you love the image of Christ? Do you love the image of Christ? Um, he breaks this down into two elements the image of Christ in his word and the image of Christ in his people. And I'm actually going to read um, some of his quote here on this because this was really good. Uh, do you love the image of Christ in his word and people? He says, do you love the image of Christ on his word? As Caesar's coin bore Caesar's image and superscription, so the word of the scriptures, which is the word of Christ, bears Christ's image and superscription. Do you love the scriptures because of Christ's image which is upon them? Do you love the word of doctrine in the scriptures because of the image of Christ's truth and wisdom upon it? Do you love the word of precepts in the scriptures because of the image of Christ's holiness upon it? Do you love the word of threatenings in the scriptures because of the image of Christ's righteousness upon it? Do you love the Lord of promise? promises in the scriptures because of the image of Christ's goodness, grace, and love upon it. Have you Christ's word in your Bibles and sometimes sounding in your hearts, but does the word of Christ dwell in your hearts? Then he goes on about uh, the image of Christ and his people. He says, do you love Christ's image on his people? If you do not love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love the Lord whom you have not seen? That's First John, right? All Christ's disciples bear Christ's image. If you love the original, you will love the picture, although it is but imperfectly drawn. So again, Christ's image on his word and on his people. Do you love Christ's image? Uh, I was... Um, listening to R.C. Sproul this week, and he was talking about those who claim to love Christ but do not participate in the local church. He says, is it possible they're a Christian? He says, it's possible that I can shoot a 67 on the golf course, but not very likely. I think it's the same thing. You see this here. 
It's possible, but not likely. If we won't participate with His Word and His people, do we love Christ? Do we have the Holy Spirit? The fourth is, do you love Christ with your obedience? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now these Puritan tests that they give us are high standards. They're difficult bars to meet. But we must see these as a grace and not a burden to us. Um, I see three ways that their grace is and not burden. And the first one is that these, these kind of tests of our faith are diagnostic tests. They're not entry, entrance exams. That if you pass, you get in. If you don't, you, you, you stay out. They're diagnostic tests. How are we doing? That's a grace to us. The second reason it's a grace is that low scores push us to the cross. They're designed to push us to the cross. And that's a grace. And the third reason is that failing scores call us to repentance. And that's a grace as well. So they're always grace. These kind of tests of our faith are always grace and cause for praise and rejoicing unless... We neglect the tests or we turn from the tests to anywhere but Christ. I think sometimes when we fail, when we screw up, we kind of get into this sort of self-perpetuating cycle of like guilt, self-medication, more guilt, self-medication, like these kind of things. We can turn to anywhere but Christ. These tests are meant to drive us to Christ. So how do we go about practically conducting and analyzing these kind of tests? As first, you just ask yourself honestly, do you see these fruits? Do you see these fruits in your lives? These four things, and there are other other you know other ones, not just these four, but do you see the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life? Um, and then another step to conducting and analyzing these tests, and this is critical, is take a large sampling of your life. Don't say, well, this week I'm just not doing well, right? But look back over the course of five years, ten years. Have you grown in these fruits? Have, are you seeing them slowly come on to your branches? Because we can get down on ourselves because we are, it was mentioned this morning in the prayer time, two steps forward, one step back, three step forward, two step back. That's how we are. So we can get down on ourselves. But if we look over the course of our lives, is the Holy Spirit sanctifying us? It's a simple question to ask. Thirdly, be brutally honest with yourself. (laughs) Is the fruit there or is it not? And then, fourthly, take opportunity for R&R. Not rest and relaxation. Although, that's an important thing to do too. R&R, repentance and rest. Repentance and rest. You repent of your sins when you see them and then you flee to Christ. You run to Christ and you rest in Him. That's the only thing you can do. So the Holy Spirit's presence with us dispels doubt and and defeats any notions of phony faith within our hearts. Now again, this is kind of a conundrum passage as a whole because we have this question, how does Simon's apparent fall from grace impact our understanding of these things, our understanding of doubt, of phony faith, of assurance, of perseverance? 
Jesus here confirms for us what we've already learned is that faith in the gospel and the Holy Spirit are the things that dispel phony faith. It's actually, if we look at the story of Simon, it's confirming for us. It doesn't inject doubt for us. I saw this week a, a Thomas Aquinas quote that I thought was really good. He said, Many cry to the Lord that they may win riches, that they may avoid losses. They cry that their family may be established. They ask for temporal happiness, for worldly dignities. And lastly, they cry for bodily health. For these and such like things, many cry to the Lord. Hardly one cries for the Lord himself. How easy it is for a man to desire all manner of things from the Lord and yet not desire the Lord himself. As though the gift could be sweeter than the giver. That's the question, is it? Do we desire the Lord or do we desire all the things he can give us? That's what we see with Simon. (laughs) You know, it's not just Simon, it's our problem too. But Simon is obsessed with his own greed, his own power. Verses 9 and 10 says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. The people of Samaria were saying that he, or no, Simon was saying that he himself was somebody great. He was saying, I'm somebody great. Look at my magic. And they were saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They were buying into the hype. And it says, from the least to the greatest of them were buying into his hype. He was obsessed with his greatness, with his power, with his fame. Um, Some traditions about Simon from church history that may or may not be true, but that are interesting in this realm of Simon's fame is um, for one thing they say he may have been famous as far as Rome he was well known in the area also says that after this event he may have followed Peter around kind of being a a pain in his rear a thorn in his side um, continually afflicting uh, damage on Peter and finally one of the they they say that he may have been um, the father of Gnosticism or or Christian Gnosticism Um, we, we don't know if any of those things are true but this was a man of self-importance, and and indeed in that area, a man of importance. But he misunderstands the gift of the Holy Spirit. He misunderstands true power, and that the Holy Spirit is not a magic trick, that you can go into a magic shop and buy a formula to, to get this power. The Holy Spirit is not an incantation that you can recite. He's not a a superpower that you can buy with money. But that's how he perceived it in verses 17 through 19. It says that then they laid their hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So for one thing, the the laying on of hands, there was nothing magical about that, but it was a sign, again, a sign that these Samaritans are of us. These Samaritans, and and that the apostles had some authority in that realm. But to Simon, the Holy Spirit was just kind of another, a trick in his bag, so to speak, for which he is rebuked. 
sternly. <laughs> um, verses 20, um, 20 through 24, we read the buke, rebuke that Peter gives to him. And he says to Simon, may your silver perish with you. Re- really, he's saying, may you and your silver go to hell. It's that stern. That's, it's clear in the Greek. You can go to hell for what you just offered. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. This is also very stern. Uh, in, in the Greek, you, the word matter is logos. This is essentially you have nothing to do with any of this that we're talking about. Any of this message, you don't have anything to do with it. For your heart is not right before God. He says in 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Let's take in that gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity idea is taken from Deuteronomy 29:18, where the people are warned, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. It's idolatry. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitterness fruit. Bitter fruit. Simon is, he's saying, still lost in his idolatry. And that as a person in the church who's now been baptized, he's a root of bitterness. He's going to contaminate the rest of the church. He's still caught up in idolatry and, and the idolatry of self. He, he goes on and Simon, he says, Simon answers, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's interesting, he, he still seems to think that these men have sort of a special access to a secret superpower. Rather than seeking the Lord himself, he says, you pray for me. We can be a bit like Simon, though. We can't be too hard on him. I mean, I... You see in in the charismatic circles and evangelicalism at large this sort of idea of we we must do it all right and the Holy Spirit will arrive if we get the emotion right if we get the everything right or or if I obey the Lord the right way then the Holy Spirit will come upon me now we can't just accuse those outside because we can do that in the Reformed Church as well right. If we get our exegetical preaching right, if we get our liturgy right, if we get our doctrine right, then the Holy Spirit will come. We can manipulate the Holy Spirit to come. We can be like Simon, trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift. Where Christ sends His people and His Word and truth his spirit and his kingdom are always present. It's a gift. It's a gift from Christ. 
This passage is a testimony to the power of Christ against phony faith. It's not about us. It's about what has Christ done and what is he doing? It's about him. It's about his kingdom, his glory, his church, the advance of his church, even into Samaria, despised Samaria. His church is going there and it can go on here, too. So how do we fight phony faith? The only thing I can do is what the Holy Spirit does. Direct us to Christ. We go to Christ. He gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And we see in verse 25, that's what the apostles did. As they left, they went uh, back to Jerusalem. It says in verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I've noticed themes in our culture in our society in our church lately that are like are are military that the church is to be fighting um, yes that's true the church is to be fighting but what are the weapons of our warfare is it to to spout off with angry words or to become belligerent or what how do we fight the world around us It's Christ's power. It's the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Great Commission. That's how we fight. That's how Jesus advances his kingdom. And phony faith is no match for Christ and for his kingdom. Christ's warfare is Christ's people, Christ's gospel, and Christ's spirit. And may we be committed confidently to the same as the apostles were. Amen.